Deuteronomy chapter 31. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will drop a Bible off to you so that you can follow along in our Bible study. And uh, tonight we're in chapter 31 and we'll probably get three quarters of the way through chapter 32 and I'm going to give you back your five minutes. Otherwise we'd finish the book, you know. As we come to chapter 31, we're nearing the end of the book and the end of Moses' life. We're in the middle of Moses' final address, his final appearance before the people that he has now been leading for the past 40 years. And what we're studying right now is essentially Moses' last service. He's giving a church service here in these closing chapters. And the service started in our study last week in chapter 29 with the covenant that he was making, that God was making with his people concerning their place in his land. And then in chapter 30, he gave to them a prophecy concerning their future and a proposition concerning their choices that they would make in their future. And now in chapter 31, he's going to inaugurate Joshua. He's going to pass the baton of leadership onto his assistant, the one who's been with him, serving alongside of him for all of these years now. And then in chapter 32, he's going to sing a song or give the lyrics to a song that the Lord gave to him. Then chapter 33, he gives his final blessing to the 12 tribes. And then in chapter 34, Moses goes to heaven. And so that is essentially the closing of the book. And tonight in chapter 31, we see the passing of the baton of leadership. And so if I could draw your attention to chapter 31, the first verse we read. It says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Now, among those in the Bible that are held up for us as the standard for a good leader, Moses has to be in the top five of that list of the great leaders in the Bible, and probably of the great leaders of all time. And as we study his life, we understand that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, eating from silver spoons, brought up in the palace of Pharaoh, trained in all of the wisdom and the knowledge of the Egyptians. But then he spent the second 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert, learning the terrain of the Sinai wilderness, And learning in the school of the seminary of the Holy Ghost the ways of the Lord that he might lead the people of the Lord. So that in the last 40 years of Moses' life, from age 80 to age 140, he could be a great leader and a great influence upon the people of God and for the kingdom of God. Now, he tells them here on his 120th birthday that his ministry is essentially over that he can no longer go out and come in among them. But the reason for that is not because he's too weak or too frail or too old, for we will see that his natural strength is not abated, neither is his eyesight dim. But rather, the reason for it is because the Lord told him that his course is over, that he will not bring the children of Israel into the promised land, and that he will now be going to heaven. And that's the end of his ministry. So Moses is a great leader held up for us. Now, there's a lesson in this, and that is this. That no matter how good a leader might be, and that might be a spiritual leader or a mentor or somebody that you look up to in your life, that leader can never bring you all the way in to what God has for your life. God says, you're not going to take them into the land, Moses. You're not going to cross over this Jordan. So no matter how good a leader is, a leader can only take you so far. The glory of the Christian faith and the God that we serve is that we have the privilege and the invitation of knowing him personally. That's what he's called us into. That's what he saved us for. 
not a religion, not so that we could fill church pews or give money or superstitiously hold a set of ideals, but he saved us so that we could intimately know him and relate to him and have fellowship with him, communion. That's what he saved us for. And no human being can ever bring you into the fullness of what that experience entails. Only the Lord himself can bring you into that experience. And so a leader can show you the way. They can set an example for you. They can teach you things that you need to know, but they can never be the initiator of you having that intimacy. That's between you and the Lord, and the Lord must bring you into that. And so God says, you're not going to bring them in, Moses. But who is then? Verse 3. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. It isn't going to be Moses, the mentor, the leader, the lawgiver, but rather it's going to be the Lord himself who's going to fulfill his promise and bring you into the promises that he has for you, the life that he's called you into, the spiritual life in Jesus Christ. That's going to come from God. And he says, and also Joshua. Now, interesting, Joshua, Yahshua, is the Hebrew name for the Greek or Aramaic of Jesus. It's the same name. And so Moses, the law, isn't going to bring you in, but the Lord is with the help of Yeshua, with Joshua, Jesus. And that's who brings us into an intimate relationship with God that we're called into. The Lord and his son who sacrificed himself upon the cross for our sins so that atonement could be made and we could be made at peace with God, at one with him. And so God's going to bring you in. God himself wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with us. He wants to reveal himself to us in a personal and intimate way, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Well, he goes on and he says, verse 4, it says, And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And so what we have here is an account that teaches us or deals with succession in leadership. The baton of leadership is being passed from one person to the next uh, in this passage. Now, an interesting thing that we see here is this. And that is that God has a plan. He has a program, something that he is accomplishing on planet Earth. It started when he spoke in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. And it will finish, it will culminate ultimately, as we read in Revelation 22, when all things are wrapped up and there's a new heaven and a new earth and we move on into eternity. But everything that happens between Genesis 1-1 and Revelation chapter 22 is the preordained or foreknown plan of God that he has. Like Paul said to one of the churches, he said that known of God are all his works from the foundation of the world. And so God has a plan, a program, something that he's doing. Now, in that plan and in bringing it about, he uses human instruments. He raises up leaders, people that can represent him, people that can be an example to others of who he is and how to relate to him. And so God uses leaders. But when a leader passes off the scene, or when a leader is put on the shelf by God, or when they've fulfilled the course that God has for them, their ministry, like that of Moses, might cease. It might stop. But the program of God, the plan that he has, that's going to continue. And so we see that here. We see Moses, this great leader, is going to die. But that doesn't mean that the plan or the program of God is going to be derailed. But rather, God has Joshua that he's already prepared, who's going to take the baton of leadership from Moses, And he's going to lead the people on uh, as he has said. 
And so leadership changes. God is not dependent upon human leadership, but he will use it, employ it for his purposes. So leadership changes. But now he goes on to tell us that there are two things in this program of God, this plan that he has. There's two things that do not change. Notice with me in verse 8. He says, and the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Number one of the two things that do not change, number one is the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His will doesn't change. His plan doesn't change. His kingdom doesn't change. It's unaltered. It doesn't diminish. The Lord remains constant, and he always is to be the focal point, the epicenter of all that pertains to God and relates to God in the kingdom of men. Jesus, the Lord, he doesn't change. And so the Lord is the same. And then number two, verse nine, is the word. The word doesn't change. Notice it says, so Moses wrote this law. And delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross over Jordan to possess. So important is it to the Lord that his word is sustained, that it's upheld, that it's given generation by generation. That every seven years he called that when the people are all gathered together in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, that this law, the book of Deuteronomy that Moses wrote, that we have studied, that that be read so that, first of all, they might hear it. That their ears might be influenced, that their spirit might be fed, that their understanding might be opened, and that they might know who God is and what is required of them by him. And that then, because of that, they would learn to fear the Lord. Fear has become an impopular word in the church of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. Don't say anything that makes people uncomfortable. Don't make God to be a God who is to be feared. God's to be a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of grace. And so we don't talk about the things of God that might cause us to tremble or fear. Listen, church, when you have a people that are fearless, you have a people that are reckless. The fear of the Lord is as important, if not more important, than the aspects of his character that concern his love and his grace and his mercy. It's so important that we fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so he says, my word is to be read to them that they might fear me. Now, we don't know if they ever did this. There's no account of any time in their history, at least biblically, that we read of them gathering together and doing this, except for one. And that was after God had poured out his judgment upon them because of rebellion. And they had spent 70 years as slaves in Babylon. When they came back to Israel after that captivity and the people rebuilt the wall and they were gathered together, it tells us there that Ezra the scribe, that he took a copy of the law and he read it to the people every day, reading them this very word that we are studying. From 9 a.m. to 12 noon, he would gather them and read them this word and the revival that came out of those meetings was unmatched by anything else that ever happened in Israel's history. And so the power of the word of God to bring to life the spirit of man and to bring him back into a relationship with God is what God intended all along. And that's how important the word of God is in the kingdom of God and in the things pertaining to God. Now, the church historically has always had a problem with the transitioning of leadership or the passing on of the baton. 
You know, we drive by churches that are 200 years old, you know. And we know people that have been going to those churches since 1944, you know, and they have their place that they sit. And, and when you talk to them about spiritual things, they say, well, this is the way that we do it because Pastor Edwards back in the, you know, this is the way he did it. Or they say, no, because this is what the reformers did. And they would read, they would sing these hymns this way and they would preach from that pulpit this way for that long. And they would, they, they have this method, if you would, to the way that they do things, and and they're not able to transition and pass on the baton of leadership. They're still seeking to relate to God through something that God did many generations ago in yesteryear. And, and, And they're doing everything the same way, but the life of it is gone. Why? Because, you see, with God, things change. Music styles change. Culture changes. People change. The world changes over and again. And God is not concerned with those peripheral things of music styles or the way people dress or the way a building looks or where a building is or if churches are large or churches are small. God's not concerned with all of that. There's two things that God's very concerned with. There's two things that are never to change from generation to generation. Number one is the Lord. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That is the purpose and function of the kingdom of God. Primarily is to exalt, magnify, and bring him glory. That's our number one purpose. And number two thing that cannot change is the word of God. The truth of the scriptures. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away. But my word will never pass away. And in a place where Jesus is Lord... And the word of God is proclaimed and taught and and, and honored. God is going to move by the power of his spirit in that place. And he will meet every generation where they're at in his way through those things. The word of God and, 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 and him, himself. He will meet with them as himself. And so we see the passing of the baton of leadership here from Moses to Joshua. We see that he's called, the Lord is to be the center, the word is to be read. And so now we move in these next verses from the succession of leadership now to the concept of spiritual success. Notice with me in verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting, that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. I wonder what it was like to be Joshua. And all of a sudden, you know, he's in his tent, and all of a sudden Moses is there, and Moses comes and he says, Hey, Josh, uh, the Lord wants to see you. <laughs> okay, what is it? I don't know. Don't know if he's happy or not. I, I would have messed with him a little, you know. So, so they, 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 they come there, and now all of a sudden they're there, and the glory of the Lord descends. The pillar of the cloud that they had seen so many times previously now comes down, and the Lord prepares to speak. And it says that the Lord said to Moses, verse 16, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. Essentially, what God is saying to Moses is this. Moses, I just want to congratulate you today on your birthday. Your ministry has come to an end. You, for 40 years, you've led these people, and I just want you to know something. It's going to fail. They're going to turn away. Your life's work and everything that you did is ultimately going to come to nothing. Because the people are going to turn away from me and I'm going to turn my back on them because of it. Not only is Moses hearing that message, who's finishing his course, that, hey, thanks, good try, but you failed. But Joshua, also who's hearing this message, hey, hey, Josh, good luck, but it's not going to work. 
<laughs> you're going to give your life to serving these people, to, to leading them into the land of, of, of obtaining my promises, but ultimately in the end game, when we look down the road and see everything that's going to happen, it's not going to work. Ultimately, you're going to fail. You say, wait a minute. They, wait, Lord, you mean all the strife, all of the... All of the, the murmuring and the bitterness and, and the miracles and all of that, and, it, and it's, it's not going to work, right? Yeah, it's not going to work. We failed. Really? Yeah, you failed. But Moses goes down in history as being one of the most successfully esteemed leaders. Joshua. The only time, in fact, that the word success is used in the Bible is in Joshua 1, verse 8, where it says that if you stay close to me, Joshua, you will prosper and you will have good success. It's the only time in the Old Testament, English Bible, that that word is used. So Joshua esteemed as a successful leader. Moses successful, Joshua successful, yet their ministry, a complete and absolute failure. You say, what gives? Here's what gives. It's the way or the difference, rather, between how man and how God measures success. How does man measure success? We measure success by whether or not we're able to accomplish our goals. Whether or not we're able to be productive in those things that we set forth to do. And if we are, then we say that we've been successful. But that's not how God measures success. God measures success totally different. God measures success three ways. Number one, he measures success by whether or not a person, a servant of his, is, first of all, in his will. Are you in his will? That is, are you where he wants you to be doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing? That's number one with God. Are you in his will? Number two, are you being faithful to do the thing that he's given you in his will? Are you being faithful? God measures success by faithfulness, not by fruit. And number three, are you accomplishing his goals? Because sometimes his goals are completely different from what our goals were. See, the life ambition of Moses, the goal of Moses' life, was to bring the people into the promised land. That's what he wanted. He begged God. He said, please let me bring them into the land. This is what I've lived my whole life for. And God said, that's it. I've spoken. You're not bringing them into the land. And so in Moses' estimation, he says, I failed. Because his goal was to bring the people into the land. But God's goal for Moses' life was completely different. God's goal for Moses' life was to bring the people out of Egypt and then to establish them as Israel, giving them their law. Moses goes down in history as the lawgiver. See, that was God's goal for Moses' life. And in that measurement, by that standard, Moses was very successful. How about for you and me? We have goals and desires and ambitions, things that we would like to do, things that we would like to see happen in our lives that we measure our success spiritually by. Well, I want to affect souls for the kingdom of God. I want to bring people in. And that would be, to me, a fruitful and productive life. If I can lead people to Jesus, or if I could preside over revival meetings, or if I could start a humanitarian program and I'm actually helping people and making a difference in their lives. And we make those goals in our mind, and we think, well, if I can meet that goal, well, then I'm fruitful. But God doesn't look at it that way. The real question we should be asking is, Lord, what are your goals for my life? What is it? that your will is for me in this season right now that I'm in, and how can I be faithful to do that with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my strength? That's how God measures success. And the two things, our goals and God's goals for us, can be light years apart in our mind. I remember a time when I was working down in the city, and, and it was a particularly dark season of my life. I was working in a tunnel um, down at Ground Zero uh, that I won't belabor your intellect or your time by describing the horror of those working conditions to you. But so bad was it that it was actually illegal for you to be in there by yourself. But because the company I was working for didn't want to spring for the extra guy, every day I was in there by myself. And, and, and for a year and a half, you know, it was every day in this place. And it was literally a dungeon. I mean, I, I've never experienced hell like 
anything that I experienced during that time. And I came to a point at, you know, near the end. So I've been doing this you know, daily for over a year now. And I, and I got to a point where I called my boss and I said, look, you can fire me. You can, you can shoot me. You can do anything you want. I'm not going in the tunnel by myself anymore. I mean, it, it, the oppression in there was that bad. I just, I'm not, you give me someone, I'll go in. I'm not going in by myself. And he said, all right, I'll have someone there for you in the morning. And I said, good, but if you don't, I'm going home. I don't care. So I drive two hours, and I go down there, and I park my car. And the whole time, I'm going, I know there's not going to be someone here. I know there's not going to be someone here, but oh, I'm here. I'm here. So sure enough, I, I go there. And guess what? There's no one there. So I'm, 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 I'm angry. I call my boss, and he knows when he sees my name on his phone why I'm calling. So he doesn't pick up, and, and I'm like, you know, and, I'm, and I pack up all my stuff, and I go in the, in the whole thing, and I'm going, Lord, what is going on? Why is this happening? You know, in this whole thing. And I was so discouraged. I sat down on my, my tool bag, you know, there in an isolated spot for a minute, and I grabbed my uh, smartphone, and I was looking at um, one of the, the, the news websites. It's a Christian one. Um, and at the bottom of it, he always has a link to Oswald Chambers' devotion for the day, my utmost for his highest. And I remember it was August 10th. And I remember, well, I just remember. It was August 10th, and, and, and I clicked on it. And I never clicked on it. never read Oswald Sanders I, I, or Chambers. Never read it. But I was, like, you know, so frustrated, and I hit it, and I read the thing. And, and the last two sentences of that devotional that day said this. It said, God puts us in the place where we're going to bring him the most glory. And sometimes we're completely incapable of judging where that might be. And I read that and I sarcastically looked up and I said to God audibly, I said, you're saying that the place where I'm going to bring you the most glory is in a place of isolated confinement where I can't have contact with another human soul? And he said, yep. And then he said, get in the tunnel. And I went and got in the tunnel that day. And can I tell you something? It was actually a pretty good day. I wish I could say that all the days after that were good and that I had a new outlook on life and I started whistling and enjoying it. I, I didn't. I didn't win that, that battle, you know. But that day, I did. And here's why. Because that day, I felt like I was in the perfect center of God's will. Even though I was in a place where I couldn't affect anyone, where I couldn't make a difference in anyone's life, I was where he wanted me, and I was sure of it. And for that reason, I was perfectly content. See, that's what life is all about. It's not about doing what I think I should be doing or producing what I think I should be producing. It's about being where he wants me. And when you're in the center of God's perfect will, you're being successful, as successful as you can possibly be on this human earth. And that might be light years away from where you think you should be. You say, well, how do I get there? Because, I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in the center of God's will, or I don't know if I'm in the center of God's will. Can I tell you? Because it's so easy. Here's how you do it. You want to be, you want to wake up tomorrow, and you want to know for a fact that where you are, whether it's ringing up you know, uh, items at Kmart in the checkout line or whether it's in the tunnel at Ground Zero or wherever it is, if you want to know you're in the perfect will of God, here's what you do. You wake up tomorrow morning or you do it right now and you yield your life completely to God. You say, God, wherever I'm at and whatever I'm doing, I yield and give my life completely over to you. And when you do that, here's what happens. You automatically become in the center of God's will. You say, well, how, how does that work? That doesn't make sense. It does make sense because here's what happens. What you're doing is that you're giving God permission now to take control of your life. And so he can use whatever he wants to use to then steer you and bring you into that place where he ultimately designed you to be. But he can't do that until you give him the reins. That's a fancy old King James word for the you know, things that steer the horses. You know, the, the steering wheel in the New Living Bible. Until you give him the steering wheel of your life, he can't do that, see? And so your ability to be in God's will is as simple as you're yielding your life completely to him. And then you're in the center of God's will. And, and now you can watch him begin to move and orchestrate things. Samuel came and he dumped a horn of oil on David's head. He said... God's got a plan for you. He doesn't say that you're going to be king. 
He doesn't tell him that. You read the text. He doesn't say you're going to be king. He dumps the oil on his head and he says, that's God's anointing. Love you. And he leaves. Wait, what do I do? Where do I go? Do you know what David did? He went right back out into the field and he kept watching his father's sheep. But wait, I'm anointed. I'm called. There's a plan for my life. Why am I here watching these sheep? Shouldn't I be doing something? No, David. You're in God's perfect will right now, watching your father's sheep. Fighting off the lion and the bear. God's doing things in your life that you can't comprehend. You can't understand what he's doing and what he's equipping and preparing you for. But sure enough, a day came when David's father said, Hey, Dave, I want you to go and bring this food to your brothers who are in the battle. And see how they're doing and bring me word again. And that day that David went to bring that food to his brothers was the day that Goliath's head was chopped off. And the plan of God began to unfold. Do you understand? You give your life to God and you do what you're doing right now, embracing it as the will of God, and it opens the door for God to lead your life and bring you into the thing that he has ultimately designed for your life to become. You see? So it's so important uh, that we yield ourselves to God. Um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, tells to us the purpose of life. You want to know what the purpose of life is? Here it is. One verse, so simple. It says this. It says that he is worthy, that the Lord is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. And then it says this, for by your, or for your pleasure were all things created. Your purpose in life, the purpose in all of life, is to bring God pleasure. And the way that you bring him pleasure is by yielding your life to him and being in the center of his will. And so that's what he's called them onto. That is how God measures success. Well, we move on. I have one more thing to say. I'll throw it out and you can think it through. But, you know, there's a lot of people in the, in the modern day um, in the church that have been burned by bad church experiences. Um, we, we see a lot of it. You know, people come, they say, I was a part of a church for 20 years and, and it just fell apart or there was some financial, uh, you know, mis deeds or the pastor fell into adultery or you you know we hear all of these things and and you've lived it you know we've experienced these things and here's what i would encourage to you is that don't look at those years or that time or that experience as a failure don't say well i wasted so much money supporting a church that came to nothing or i wasted so much energy and time investing in a work that ultimately turned out to be hypocritical god doesn't measure it that way Because God looks at these people and he says, ultimately, it's going to come to nothing. It's going to fail. But you were successful because you were where I wanted you to be and you were doing what I wanted you to do. And that's how God measures success. So, you know, hey, someday I want to write a book for new Christians, and that's going to be one chapter, is don't, you know, be scandalized when your church falls apart, (laughs) you know, because it happens. And it's it's part of our walking with the Lord, getting our eyes off of man and onto God. Amen? Anyway. He goes on the rest of the chapter, and, and what he does here is he gives Moses his final to-do list. This is, he gives him a little post-it note now. God says, these are the last things I want you to do. Uh, number one is write a song. Verse 19, he says, Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that the song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. And when I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers that they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, and they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be that when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. That's the song that we'll read in chapter 32. Then, number two on his to-do list, is uh, it says, verse 23, Then he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. That is, the Lord will be with you. Joshua. And so Joshua is now officially ordained, appointed as Moses' successor. And then uh, number three on the to-do list in verse 24, he says, And so it was when Moses has completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law 
and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? So number three is that he's to finish the book of the law to finish putting together what we are studying right now, uh, the book of Deuteronomy and ultimately the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that they would be set beside the Ark of the Covenant as an everlasting witness of God uh, and his word. And then number four, he says, verse 28, gather to me all the elders of your tribes, and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Any volunteers for... Pioneer Club? No. (laughs) So Moses' final to-do list. He's to write the song. He's to inaugurate Joshua. He's to finish his work on his first and only book, the Torah. And then he is to gather the people together to rehearse the words of the song. And now these are the words of the song. Now, chapter 32, the song of Moses, it basically breaks down like this. If you're an outliner or a highlighter, he he does a couple of things with this song and it'll help you to follow along. First of all, what he does is he sets forth a contrast. A contrast between God and men. That's how he begins. That's a great contrast, isn't it? We'll see. And then he does a second contrast, and that is the work of God towards men versus contrasted with the response of man back to God. So that's part two of this thing. And then part three is the outcome of that. And you can kind of guess where it's going. It hasn't been going good for the children of Israel. Uh, you know, so the outcome of, uh, of their response to God's goodness, that's the third section of it. And then it ends with a call to return, come back. Uh, the Lord calls them to. And so that's kind of how it breaks down, and, and it begins here in verse 1. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. So his introduction, very poetic, very uh, Uh, you know, captivating, and then he gets right into it. Now he begins talking to them about God. So the beginning of this contrast, the person of God, five things he tells us about God here in these next two verses. He says, verse three, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. The first thing is he brings to their attention the person of God and who he is as he brings forth his name. Now the name of God is very important on the pages of scripture. Because the name of God is not simply the way that he's addressed, but rather it's a reflection of his nature. The name reflects the nature. And to Moses, the name of the Lord was revealed in a unique and powerful way. When God sent Moses to Israel to set them free from Egypt, Moses said, what's your name that I might tell them who sent me? And God said to Moses, tell them my name is I am. Tell them that I am sent you. Now, that's kind of a tough message to carry because whose name is I am? But in calling himself I am and giving Moses that name to declare unto the people, what he was giving to them was in his nature the quality of his all-sufficiency. And the idea is that he is all that we need. I am. And when you read the names of God that are revealed in Scripture, Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Rama and Jehovah Tzidkenu and Jehovah Rapha and you, you know you go through Jehovah Nisi and all of the names that are revealed and all that they entail and what they represent what we discover is that there is an aspect of who he is to meet with every person in whatever season of life they are in and that is an element of God that Moses brings to their attention at the onset of the song is that God is all sufficient for your needs That whatever it is that you need, whatever it is that you're going through, he is that need meter to you in your life. And there is nothing 
that you're going through or that you need that he isn't able to meet you in or supply or to help you with. And so he says, the Lord, his name, I proclaim the name of the Lord, his nature, the all-sufficiency of God. Ascribe greatness to our God. And then number two in verse four, he says, for he is the rock. Now, I love that. Because how many of us need a rock in our life? I know I need a rock in my life. Something that's stable, something that's secure, something that is anchored, something that's unmovable, that I can be attached to, that my life can be built upon, so that when life happens, as life does, I can be situated and anchored upon something that's immovable, and that doesn't change, and that promises to uphold and be secure in whatever situation I'm in. And so he says, he's the rock, he's your rock. And then number three, he says, his work is perfect. And what that means is that when God does something, when God works, he does it in absolute perfection. He never wastes moves, you know, like me. When I work around the house, I, I, I go for my tape measure, but then I leave my pencil. So I, I, you know, I go back and measure, but I don't have my pencil. So then I go get my pencil, but then I don't have my, you know, thing to write on. And, and what it is, wasted moves. I'm wasting moves. God never wastes moves is that when God is working in a person's life or in a situation or in a church or in a nation and he's doing something, his work is perfect. It means there's no pawns in the kingdom of God. There's never someone who's just, well, you're just someone who's expendable. I've got something bigger going on and so I'll use you, but your life's really not important to me. No, God doesn't work that way. Even Hagar, who was just an Egyptian bondmaid there, taken by Abraham when he was out of the will of God. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. But even she was not a pawn in the the things of God. He took care of her and he showed her a well and he blessed her and said, I'm going to make of your son a great nation. And God took care of her. And so there's no casualties uselessly. There's no pawns. There's no mistakes. There's no wasted moves. His work is absolutely perfect. What he's doing in your life is perfect. No matter what it is that you're going through or struggling with or doubting because of or wondering where is God in the middle of this, he's right in the middle of it and he knows exactly what he's doing and he's working all things together for good and someday you will look back and your response will be perfect. Perfect, Lord, what you did. His work is perfect and then his ways are justice. Uh, All his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And that is that all of his decisions, the judgments, the verdicts that he makes are always right. It's never shady. It's never, God, I don't know, but that thing that you did in Auschwitz or the way that this was handled, God, I'm not sure about that, never. Is that Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, when all things are said and done, and the multitude is around the throne, the first thing that they declare is, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. The way you handled everything was perfect. Your decisions were just, righteous. And that's who God is. And that's how Moses sets him up. He says, this is God. This is who saved you. This is who you're serving. But now he contrasts that with man in verse 5. He says, they... Man now, they have corrupted themselves. The number one mark of man is that he is corrupted. The word means that he's decayed, he's ruined, he's spoiled, like spoiled milk. It'd be like if you were, you know, carrying a a, a bowl of ice cream and, you know, you were walking through your yard and you stumbled a little bit and it slid out of the bowl or, you know, rolled off the cone and it fell into a pile of dog waste, you know. And you were just like, oh, I wonder if I could salvage that, you know. <laughs> you, know you wouldn't even try. You'd be like, nope, corrupted. It's, there's nothing redeemable about that. That is a wasted bowl of ice cream. Even if you could try to, like, you know, circumcise that a little bit, there's no way. I ain't eating it. It's not happening, you know. And that's what God says. When God looks at man, he says he's not what he once was, and he's not what he's intended to be. He's been corrupted. We've been polluted by sin, and that's what he said. That's what he sees. That's what we are. We're corrupted. They've corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. And the word blemish is a stain. And it's not a stain like you would have on your shirt, but rather it's a stain that is deep within in the fabric of your soul. 
It's soul fabric stain. There's a blemish there. That's what God sees. Then he says, a perverse and crooked generation. The word perverse means to be distorted, like abstract art. You ever see abstract art? I hate abstract art. I always have. Like, that's cheating. You don't have to be a good artist to do that. I can do that, you know. But God looks at us and he says, it's abstract. It's Andy Warhol. They've got problems, you know. They're twisted. He says they're perverse, and then he says crooked. And the word crooked means crafty. It means manipulative. It means sleight of hand. It means that we deal with God one way and ourselves another way, or we deal with certain people. We're just, we're so inconsistent. That's what we are. And so he sets this contrast before them. And he says, do you deal thus with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? And has he not made you and established you? And then he goes on now in the second contrast in verses 7 and onward. And he says, now this is what God has done for you. He says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. In other words, what God is saying there is that when when I first founded, from the time that Adam was first made, I already in my mind had separated a place where I was going to put my people. Is that I separated a place so that they could be separated unto me. And that's what God does. He separates his people unto him. And then he says in verse 9, he says, For the Lord's portion is his people And Jacob is the place of his inheritance. And and so that's what God does, is he takes pleasure in his people. Do you know that the Lord takes pleasure in you tonight? When he looks at your life and he sees the blood of Jesus Christ as the merit that you bring to bring you into the family of God, that God takes pleasure in your life. He takes pleasure in the things that, you know, make you who you are, in the soul fabric of you. Not because of you, but because you're his. That's his choice, that of all the things that he could take pleasure in, he chooses to take pleasure in his people. And then in verse 10, he says, He found him, Israel, his people, in a desert land and in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Third thing that he says that God has done for you is that, first of all, he found you, then he protected you, and then he encircled. instructed you he found you in a place where you were lost when you were estranged from him when you were wandering in the wilderness and then what he did without you even knowing that this was happening is that he drew a circle around you and he said nothing can touch that and and i mean how many of us can can think of things before we even got saved before we even gave our lives to the lord things that should have killed us or things that have, should, should have destroyed our lives. I know for me, I fell off a roof and landed on my face, you know, a month and a half before I got saved. I was in the hospital for a week, in and out of consciousness, blood clots in my brain. I should have died. It was that severe. You know, I saw the MRIs with my face crushed. It was crazy, you know. But, but he saved me. He didn't let me die apart from him at that time. I got saved a month and a half later, and he healed me completely. Well, you might not think so. But, but he did. He encircled them, and then he instructed them. He taught them how to get out of that situation that they were in. He saved them, and he kept them as the apple of his eye. And then, number four, what else did he do? He raised you, verse 11, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, for there was no foreign God with him. And he draws this analogy and says, this is how I worked in your life, just like a mother eagle takes care of her young. And and it's a great picture. You know, we don't have time to to, to explore it in depth, but if you ever, you know, look at the way an eagle raises its young, what they do, the way they train them is that they do everything with them. The mother eagle will soar, and, and then the eaglet will soar over the mother so that they're soaring in tandem, and she'll teach the eaglet how to catch the current of the updraft coming up the cliff and, and, and teach them how to hunt and show them the circuits of the migratory patterns and always bring them back to home. That's the, the gauge, the compass, is that they always come back to home. And, and that's what the Lord does. He works in us in tandem with us. He leads us. He teaches us how to be led of his spirit. And, and he teaches us where home is. So that no matter where we are or where we find ourselves at any time, we can always look and say, that's home. I know where home is. 
because he showed me what home is. And he says, I led you. I brought you up. I raised you. And then in verse 13, he elevated them. It says, he made them to ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, milk from the flock, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And and, and you drank wine, the blood of grapes. I've given you everything that my hand can possibly supply for you is what God is saying. There's nothing that I've withheld, that I've done it all. That's the way that God deals with his people. And that's the life that he calls us into. We'll stop there for tonight, and we'll pick up in verse uh, 15 as we look at how they responded then. How did they respond to the goodness that God had shown unto them, and what was then the outcome of it? And so we'll pick up there, and we'll finish the book of Deuteronomy uh, next week. And so let's bow our heads. And so, Father, we come to you tonight. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this testimony of your great care and your great love for each one of us. That perfect and true are all your works done in justice and righteousness. You separated us unto yourself and you called us your portion. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would take the things that we've heard as we consider the concept of being in the perfect center of your will And as we hold that against the conditions of our life, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to surrender. To so throw ourselves upon you, Lord, that we might find ourselves soaring in the perfect center of what you've called us to be. And I pray for those tonight that may be in their own personal tunnel situation, feeling as though their lives aren't amounting to what they once had hoped or what they once had thought that, Lord, in you they would find the faith to be able to look up to heaven and look at their lives and say, my life is yours, O Lord, and make it successful in your eyes. And I pray, Lord, that in that place they would find such contentment, such rest, as they trust in you and in your ability to bring forth your perfect will within their lives. And, Father, I pray tonight for any that are here that maybe don't know you, that as they hear this testimony, perhaps for the first time, about a God who cares so much, that he would have them come into intimate fellowship with himself. That a holy, awesome, powerful, majestic God who can do all things by the breath of his word would want to have fellowship with me and make his face to shine upon me, to open his hand satisfy my life with good things. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you personally, that tonight they would come out of the way of darkness and that they'd enter into the way of understanding. That they would find in you such favor, such light, such life. It says in the light of the king's face there is life. That tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would lift their heart to heaven and that they'd be introduced to the God who formed them, who loves them, who shed his blood to save them. And so we ask you, Lord, to take up our lives and lead us into the perfect center of your will. And we thank you for this time. May we leave here in the joy and the strength of your might. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I'll stand together.